So good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. <clears throat> we had a lot of requests. The New England Journal came out with an article a few months ago about a new weight loss drug. We've had a lot of requests to cover that. It's also a new diabetes drug. And now wait a minute, which is it, weight loss or diabetes? Well, I mean, here's the thing. If you do what I do for a living, you know that di managing diabetes is weight loss. No, the, the number one cause of diabetes is not uh, overweight, obesity, body fat. That's the number two cause. But the number one cause is getting old and you really can't change that piece. You can slow it down, but you can't change that. You can change body fat. And again, when you do what I do for a living, you see people all day, every day that have had uh, oral glucose tolerance tests, insulin surveys, you know that just losing 10 pounds of body fat has more of a positive impact on glucose metabolism and insulin than anything else. So <clears throat> uh, you, you might hear the question you might ask, well, Doc, are you running a cardiovascular prevention clinic or are you running a weight loss clinic? I always saw it as running a cardiovascular prevention clinic, but, you know, here's the thing. I got to admit, I mean, weight loss is cardiovascular prevention. Another thing is going to come up, another reaction, and I've had this reaction how many times? I mean, Ken Berry left that on one of my comments uh, you know, Ken Berry, the doc from Tennessee, he said, Doc, you talk about medications. Lifestyle is king. I talk about lifestyle. Lifestyle is king. You can't, you know, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Um, you can't outprescribe a lifestyle issue. But I've also covered the fact that <clears throat> there are times and places where the science is really clear. Medications can help. In a like fashion, you can't out-supplement a lifestyle problem, but there are times when a supplement can help. Um, in addition, exercise is not, you can't outrun a diet. But yes, exercise can help. So, <clears throat> again, got a lot of attention about this this drug, uh, most folk, most of you have probably already heard about it, terzepatide or Mount Jero. I've had several patients request it, um, and we're going to talk about it today. Previous, uh, for those of you who have not joined the channel before, we're all about heart attack and stroke prevention. Heart attacks and strokes, cardiovascular disease, it is the number one killer and disabler in our world today. And what's unfortunate is that the vast majority of the docs, about two thirds, according to the science, really don't know how to diagnose the most common, the most important underlying root cause, prediabetes. Again, that's not just my opinion, that's the science saying that. So uh, the leaders, the guys that were, are supposed, the guys and gals that are supposed to be helping us out of this problem don't know how to manage it either. So 
if you're going to take care of yourself, if you're going to prevent heart attack, prevent stroke, prevent um, kidney disease, blindness, dementia, you got to learn some things for yourself. And that's what this channel is all about, helping you understand how to extend a healthy life for you and those you love. So we'll, we'll cover topics like this. Uh, previous topics we've covered, the worst ingredient for your, your immune system. I'll give you, that sounds like a, a teaser and it is, I'll give you the answer, it's carbohydrates. They looked at um, the immune system of people that were going through a cytokine storm, COVID related issues, high blood sugar and um, carbohydrate ingestion were the major killers. It messed up the immune system. This was a study. It's not something, you know, it's not an edit, editorial from me. It's a study that we covered in the science. Long COVID, it was more than just a flu. Also more studies talking about exactly how long COVID is working. Um, and, you know, there's nothing better. We're all about the science and covering the science, the evidence that's out there about heart attack and stroke prevention, but there's nothing better uh, than taking a break from that and hearing what a real patient has to say. Somebody who's been on that hero's journey, who's dealt with that issue, not just somebody who's um, a doc who's given you opinions or spouting science. And uh, that was Lois. So we've got a couple of other good, uh, uh, good patient visits coming up soon. I'll tell you about those when we get there a little bit later. Now, as we talked about it, you have to learn some basics on how to prevent heart attack and stroke with your own, uh, with yourself and your loved ones. Uh, that's what we have developed content, uh, three courses that are about two hours uh, each. If you can't get them for free, uh, call Michelle at 859-721-1414 uh, and uh, she can figure out how to help you get those for free. That's basically just to, so you'll know and understand how to, um, how to prevent your, your own problems with cardiovascular disease. We have content in several places. We've got uh, YouTube memberships now. If you're interested in that, come join us. That's how to do it right there. Uh, for those of you who are on Locals or Rumble, we've got Locals and Rumble content and channels going now as well. So we'd love to see you there. Come on over. Um, Going to skip over that. You know about the book. If you don't, uh, we've got a book out there that talks about. Um, if, if you think, here's the core piece on the book. If you think that, hey, Doc, my brother, my brother had a heart attack. I got a lot of his genes. Can we just do a stress test to make sure I'm okay? If you think that's going to make sure you're okay, you're already headed down the wrong path. And this book goes into, just like this channel, a lot of the science about why a stress test is not going to prevent or predict a heart attack. So the short form, the single, uh, single slide deck for today before the con major content is on the second of the two blockbuster groups of diabetes drugs, Farzaga. Dapagliflozin 
It's the um, SGLT2 inhibitors. These drugs actually impact diabetes by uh, turning, turning off the kidney's ability to pull sugar back into the blood. So when the, your blood sugar gets too high, your kidney filter will, um, it's called a glomerulus. Each kidney has about a million filters and that glomerulus will spill sugar into your urine if the blood sugar goes too high. But as that continues to go down the collecting tubules in the kidney, those collecting tubules will pull that blood sh that sugar back and put it in back into the blood. The SGLT2s, which have done a, uh, have continued to show great cardiovascular outcome trials evidence, stop that that re uh, that reuptake of blood sugar. That actually leads to the biggest uh, concern about side effects. All these drugs have side effects. <clears throat> every, every, especially um, prescription drugs have side effects. The side effects for the SGLT2s are uh, infections like manilial infections, uh, like you see with, with babies with a, a, a wet diaper, that diaper rash. Now, let's go back and talk about, let me get back to the, um, <clears throat> to the script and talk about the Farzaga news. It's so, it sounds good, but once you start getting into the details, it could be better. So the FDA has approved a new generic drug for dapagliflozin it's called, or Farzaga. The new generic of the SGLT2 inhibitor is, is produced by Zytus Pharmaceuticals. The agency added two different dose formulations, five milligrams and 10 milligrams to the approved drug products with therapeutic equivalence evaluations. However, the new formulation might not be available till 2025. So again, these prices are gonna continue to stay high on both of these drug classes, the glip ones, which we'll talk about in a few minutes and the SGLT2s. Uh, 2025, why uh, might it be uh, that long before we get some competition in that market? Because that's 2025 is when the AstraZeneca um, patent expires. Zytus failed in its bid to invalidate that patent in a district court hearing in 2021. So is that the only SGLT2? No, there are others. Canagliflozin, empagliflozin. Uh, Ertiglifosin, just a bunch of different options out there. All of them, unfortunately, very expensive. Now, speaking of expensive, I just turned 65. So I qualified for Medicare here in the U.S., which meant I can get a lot of drugs uh, far less for far less expense than I could just a month ago. I've been telling myself I was going to try the glip points, one of the glip points. And sure enough, I did try one of them. I tried Ozempic. We'll talk about my experience. It, it wasn't what I expected. The, uh, the drug, let's talk for a minute about the drug that I tried. It wasn't terzepatide or Mongero. It's most commonly known as Ozempic. It's semaglutide. 
It's a GLP-1. Other names for azimpic, um, ribelsis is the uh, oral preparation. You might have heard of it as Wygovi, the weight loss medication. Again, the GLP-1s, and this is the most common one, the GLP-1s have been around for pushing 10 years now. They're actually looking to, uh, to lose their patents in another 18 months or so. We've reported on that. So at first, I didn't actually have to use my, um, my, Medicare my new Medicare benefit, although I found out that because of the, I found out that my copay was far more affordable than I expected. It was $45 a month. These drugs are about $1,000 per month still if you pay full, full price. Uh, why is Medicare uh, now offering uh, cost-effective options for these drugs and for the SGLT2s like Farzaga? The SGLT2s like Farzaga, like we talked about it a minute ago, those are $750 a month. But again, both of them now have um, very cost-effective options available through Medicare and other insurance programs. Why? Because of the CVOT trials. What is CVOT trials? Well, here's the thing. It stands for cardiovascular outcome trials. Uh, one thing we have learned as a society, as a group, as a profession is that when we're trying new medications for, di for diabetes, it's not so important how that medication impacts the diabetes as it is how it impacts cardiovascular outcomes. The diabetes isn't what kills us, it's the cardiovascular outcomes from the diabetes. So if a drug actually impacts cardiovascular outcomes, that's when it becomes, uh, when insurance companies start paying for it. That's why you're seeing the GLP-1s like Ozempic uh, and the SGLT-2s like Farzaga getting paid for. <clears throat> so what was my own experience with Ozempic? Well, as I mentioned, I didn't even have to, uh, to go through Medicare for, the, for my first uh, dose. We had some samples down at, uh, at one of my clinics. So I got a sample. The sample lasts for a month, by the way. And... <clears throat> A couple of things happened that I did, I did expect that weren't a surprise. For example, the biggest issue was my blood sugar pattern didn't really change that much. When I eat, uh, it'll still go up about 20 points. And my lowest part of the day is like uh, between 2 and 4 a.m. in the morning. That's very common. That's what we see with most folks that are, you know, have diabetes like myself, but just aren't eating carbs. Here's what was interesting though. <clears throat> the entire average dropped 20 to 30 points. So routinely my blood sugar will, uh, off of a Zempic, off of a GLP-1, will hang around 90 to 100, and then it'll spike up to 120 after eating. Um, here's what happened this time on Ozempic. 
it was routinely hanging in the 60s and it would spike up to the 90s, maybe to 100. So it was 60s and 70s uh, and then spike up to 100 and then back down. Now, <clears throat> you begin to see why and how that happens. Um, we'll talk for a few minutes about how that happens a little bit later, but let me share the rest of my experience before we go there. I, I wasn't surprised to see the significant decrease in average blood sugars. That's what the GLP ones are doing, and that's how they're having their impact. Um, the next thing that happened, I was also not surprised about, except uh, as as a clinician, as a doctor who deals with all with this all day every day, I did I wasn't surprised to see it happen. But as a human, as a patient, it was a weird feeling. For the first time that I can remember, the first time in decades, I'm not always hungry. You know, always hungry, I put it in our notes and I put it in caps because always hungry is the title of a book by David Ludwig. David Ludwig is an endocrinologist and the head of the weight loss center at Harvard. He's got some great books on uh, diabetes, prediabetes, and explaining how to manage that. The title of his uh, foremost book in this area is Always Hungry. And here's what happens. You classically see it with those of us that get prediabetes and diabetes we get changes in some key hormones in our body. One of them is ghrelin, the hunger hormone. Another one is leptin, sort of the anti-hunger hormone. And yes, we get problems with insulin and some other things. Um, he, if you have more interest in that hormone, the hormones associated with hunger, I recommend that book. It's a great book. He gets into ghrelin and leptin, and for sure he gets into insulin. But the thing that the hormones that we're going to talk about today, he really doesn't touch on very much. In fact, you don't hear a whole lot about them. They're called incretins. Again, we'll talk about those in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to share the third major change or experience that I had when I tried Ozempic, the GLP-1. So um, as you might imagine, I, I've been on it three weeks now and I've lost 10 pounds. Um, so yes, it's, it's had a big impact. I added, I do things to manage my lifestyle. So <clears throat> you put an appropriate lifestyle with an appropriate medication and it tends to have a significant impact. Um, to that point, I'll digress just a second further and say uh, one of the reasons that I get uh, beat up for talking about medications is that so many people use medications as a crutch. When you do what I do for a living, that's one of the things that I hate about my world, and that is a lot of people use metformin as a crutch instead of changing their lifestyle. A lot of people use statins as a crutch instead of changing their lifestyles. And it's crystal clear 
that a lot of people are going to use these medications as a crutch instead of doing what they need to do with their lifestyle. And again, that's a frustration. In fact, in my experience, I can tell you more people are going to just depend on any drug that's available than are going to actually do the work. I can tell you it's been a wonderful experience seeing patients coming for this channel because that's not the case with the viewers that we have here. I keep, I keep pushing uh, down the, the line on my own experience. Here's the thing that I didn't expect. It taught me, it caught me totally sideways. It was sleep. I've had better sleep since I've been on Ozempic, my Ozempic trial, than I've had in 40 years. I even slept walked one night. I was a sleepwalker as a teenager. There was more than one time that I woke up in my front yard. Uh, so a lot of people, they hear about sleepwalking and they get really nervous. You know, I'm used to it, or at least I was used to it when I was younger. Haven't had it since then. But now it's like I'm sleeping like I did when I was a teenager. I went back and started looking some things up about sleep and the GLP-1 hormones to be discussed later on. But again, it's been a very, very interesting um, experience. So now that I've covered my experience on a GLP-1, let's switch for a second and talk about this new weight loss drug, this new diabetes drug that actually beat Ozempic in terms of performance. It's called Terzepatide. And as I mentioned, a lot of people have been asking about it. The brand name is Mongero. And let's get in back into the script. This first article was from a, a journal called Molecular Metabolism 2020 in Canada. Terzepatide is a dual glucose dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. What? It's a GIP, GIP. Just leave it at that. Don't, uh, don't try to remember the rest of it. But here's the part. It's a GIP and GLP-1 agonist. So in other words, GLP-1 agonists are called incretins. What is an incretin? I said we were going to talk about that a few minutes ago. We talked about a lot of the other hormones associated with glucose metabolism and with hunger. And I mentioned the book, Always Hungry, is covering a lot of those. And I said there's some other hormones that are also very important that just don't get a lot of coverage there. We will cover them a few times as we cover our content in this space because it's important to know. Decades ago, there was a discovery of hormones that were actually created by the intestines. So what happens is the stomach dumps food, food contents that have been mixed by the stomach and mixed with acid into the intestine. As a result of getting that, that dump of food from the stomach, the intestines release some hormones. One of those hormones is GLP-1. Another of those hormones is GIP. So <clears throat> what do those hormones do? One of the things that they do, and you'll see this with uh, the GLP-1 side effects, 
and you'll also see it with uh, with Manjaro or terzepatide. Uh, decreased gastric emptying. So your stomach feels full. Um, again, I never had that feeling until I tried this. And it was, again, a weird feeling. I expected it, but it still felt weird. So the intestines will tell the stomach, okay, we've got enough uh, food to work with here. Don't empty any more on us. The, uh, the incretins do a couple of other things as well. They go to the, those incretins go to the pancreas and they say, Mm, we got some, we've got some food coming through. You're going to get a, a load of glucose into the bloodstream from us. So you better release more insulin. So it causes more insulin release. And as I said before, there's some things about things like sleep that we just don't understand yet about these incretins. As I started looking at sleep and incretins, by the way, I also saw some research that's been done looking at uh, other addictions. You know, when I'm referring to food addictions here, I'm talking, looking at other addictions such as cigarette smoking, alcohol addiction, and coke addiction. That sounds like a weird thing, but yes, there are uh, trials going on right now looking at glip ones, the incretins and their impact on the reward centers associated with other uh, addictions besides food. What's gonna come of that? I don't know, it's just, uh, I'm sharing with you some of the discovery that, that I'm having as I go through some of this, um, some of these activities. Now, <clears throat> what does, what, what does uh, terzepatide do? Let's get back to the script. Terzepatide has effects on weight loss, insulin secretion, uh, increased diuresis or uh, peeing out. Uh, it decreases gastric emptying. So these are the three are the the three big ones immediately, or short or short term weight loss, insulin secretion, and decreased gastric emptying. The biggest issue and the reason for the interest in these for people like me in cardiovascular prevention is the last item, long-term cardiovascular protection. Now, let's look at another trial. This was in The Lancet 2021. Uh, the data came out of the U.S., Japan, and Mexico. The SURPASS-1 trial, terzepatide and type 2 diabetes. It was a phase three trial that included 705 individuals. Ter terzepatide 5, 10, and 15 milligrams was compared to placebo. So, and again, terzepatide is the, uh, has a brand name of uh, Montgero. Terzepatide was superior to placebo in decreasing hemoglobin A1C, fasting glucose, self-monitored glucose levels during the day, as well as body weight after 40 weeks. Surpass 2 trial. This was in the New England Journal in 2021 with data coming from the UK, United States, and Argentina. 1,879 patients were included. Terzepatide or Mongero was compared to semaglutide, Ozempic, Ribelsus, Wygovi for type 2 diabetes control. After 40 weeks, terzepatide, pardon the, um, the typos, 
Terzepatide show, uh, in, uh, decreased hemoglobin A1C more effectively than semaglutide. Let me repeat that. So semaglutide, which is coming out of the blocks with huge improvements in cardiovascular uh, outcomes, improvements in A1C, improvements in blood sugar levels, improvements in body weight, uh, terzepatide uh, aced semaglutide or azempic in all of those areas. It increased weight loss, lower fasting, glucose levels, again, compared to the simple GLP-1. And again, the point behind that is the assumption is that uh, it's the addition of the other in cretin. So you've got a twin cretin or twin cretin uh, mechanism as opposed to just a G GLP-1 or incretin mechanism. Now, surmount one trial, 23, uh, 2539 adults were included, 2,539. Terzepatide given once weekly was compared to placebo for 72 weeks for weight loss. 85% of patients showed at least 5% body weight loss. And here's the number that knocks, knocks, it, knocks you out. Over half of those people lost up to 20% of the body weight with terzepatide. Now, these are not people that are uh, necessarily doing lifestyle changes. They're just taking a shot once a week, a simple, easy shot once a week with a tiny needle that's smaller than a Libre needle. And they're going about their day saying, I hope this is going to fix it. And sure enough, it's having a huge impact. You know, for a 200 pound person, a 20% 20, 20 body weight loss is 40 pounds. For a 160 pound person, it's 32 pounds. These are big weight losses. So again, you can go back and you say, wait a minute, this, is, this just sounds ooky. This is a, a drug way of a drug that's very effective at causing weight loss. Uh, Brewer, you're selling us out. You need to go to, um, uh, to lifestyle maintenance. As I've said before, I'm going with the science with what's there. <clears throat> and when you know, I mean, when you do what I do in terms of managing cardiovascular risk, you know that managing body fat is managing cardiovascular risk. So that's the, uh, the content, the prepped content for today. So let's go. I, um, I got on a little bit early today and gave some prep. I felt like we didn't get uh, a great title coming out. We, didn't, we should have uh, clarified that this was terzepatide. It's that weight loss, diabetes, blockbuster drug that's coming out that is, everybody's asking about rather than just saying a new diabetes drug. So we got some information out. Uh, let me go down the list here. Paisley. Good morning, Dr. Brewer. Uh, love your channel. Thank you so much, Paisley. I appreciate that. Thumbs up. Uh, my doctor is big on weight loss and metformin and these kind of drugs. I've got a lot of people on metformin. And the question is, is it weight loss or is it pre-diabetes management, diabetes management? We've already covered that a couple of times. If you have, you know, go ahead and, 
and hit me up on that if you have further questions about whether it's weight loss or prediabetes management. Uh, Paisley, he put me on uh, metformin for weight loss. So John Tucho, good morning, Dr. Brewer. Good morning to you, John. Uh, and I did comment. I've got a lot of people on metformin. Is it prediabetes or is it weight loss? Okay. Margaret D., good morning. I will catch you on the reply today. Carry on with the good work. Thank you so much, Margaret D. I uh, look forward to, uh, to hearing from you again. Shah Yar, good morning. Good morning, Shah. How are you? Bart Robinson, good morning, everyone from a hot and humid Salem County, New Jersey. Yeah, it's getting that part, that time of the year, isn't it? I love that time of the year. I'm from South Carolina and love the hot, muggy, sweaty days of late summer. Paisley, my metformin is to manage slightly elevated insulin levels, preventing me to lose weight. So you bring up a good point, but Paisley, I'm glad you did. Gives me, you know, these questions give me an opportunity to go down bunny holes. You know, you remember I mentioned the topic always hungry of uh, Dr. David Ludwig's book, the guy that manages, the endocrinologist that manages the weight loss program at Harvard. He called it always hungry because he said, look, when you start getting insulin resistant, your insulin starts creeping up. Um, when you get hungry, you get even a bigger hit of insulin. That drops your blood sugar. And these, this roller coaster of blood sugar but you get hungry when your blood sugar starts starts diving like that. So when you're getting into a mode where you're insulin resistant and your insulin is starting to do this, you start dealing with hunger. And as we mentioned before, it's not just insulin. Um, Dr. Ludwig describes this process very, very well in his book, Always Hungry. But as I also said, it's a little bit more complicated than insulin. He does talk about ghrelin. He does talk about uh, leptin, which are very important hormones in this hunger process. But he doesn't get quite so deep in the incretins. That's uh, what we covered today. And those are a big deal in this issue of us with prediabetes getting always hungry. You know, the, the term always hungry and the, and the point that you brought up, Paisley, actually gets to a related issue. Uh, Richard Taubes, who's, at, who's been at the forefront of the low-carb um, diet uh, craze or diet recommendations or whatever you want to call that, has made an excellent point. It took him 750 pages to make it, but he, he still made it very, very well. He said, most people think that middle-aged folks are getting heavy because we're eating more. That's not really what's going on. We're eating more because we're getting heavy and we're getting heavy because of our insulin resistance. Now, what did, what did he mean by that? I'm going to assume you, you followed me ex all the way to that last point because there's something else that we haven't mentioned. Elevated insulin stops our body from burning fats. 
So teenagers, you know, I know there's an obesity epidemic from even among teenagers now, but your typical skinny young teenager, our generation when we were teenagers tended to be skinny. We were not resistant to insulin at that point in time. We did not have high levels of insulin all day, every day. We did not have, have high levels of insulin in the morning, even fasting insulin, like we do now as boomers. So what happens if your insulin is elevated like that? I mean, it may be going up and down a little bit, but overall, it's much higher than it was when you were a teenager. Well, these high insulin levels stop our body from burning fat. And again, uh, I'm not going to go down this next bunny hole, but I'll mention it. I've had several uh, videos where I describe triglyceride over HDL and how that's triglycerides are a function. And HDL is a function as well of our carb metabolism and how high our insulin happens to be. It's because uh, if our insulin is up all the time because we're insulin resistant, we're not pulling that blood sugar down. So our body's saying, here, put more and more insulin out there. Keep it out there. Keep banging at those resistant insulin receptors until you get that, ins that blood sugar down. Um, when that insulin remains so high for so long, it shuts off our ability to burn fat. So instead of when we were teenagers burning fat very well, as baby boomers, we lose the ability to burn fat. So Richard Tops Tabs picks up there and says, we get insulin resistant. Our insulin cranks up higher and higher. We lose our ability to burn fat like we did when we were teenagers. When we do that, we start adding the fat onto our bodies. And guess what? If we're not able to burn fat, we got to burn something so we get hungry. So we start eating. And again, that's what, that's what takes us down that carb pathway. Okay, Paisley. So my doctor put me on metformin to lose weight, boost my metabolism. Ada Reeves, good morning. Bambi Grage, good morning, Bambi. Good to see you. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Paisley, first doc to look into it for me. Aura Ruth. You know, Aura picked up something uh, with me. Uh, I was on, I've been under a lot of pressure the past couple of years building the, uh, the Alabama project. And Aura said, Ford, have you gained some weight? Uh, yes, I had. I had gotten up to uh, close to 180. It depends on what scales you're looking at. Uh, my scales at home never said over 170. But the scales at the new clinic where I went said, yeah, 180. Now, I was continuing to work out. I was continuing to keep a low... Uh, a low waist size. It's still, I mean, it's, it got up to 33. Uh, I never got below 33 until my sixties when I went on a low carb diet. Uh, even though I was lighter in the past, I still had a 33 waist. Uh, I was getting up to again, 170, 180, uh, just overeating too many, uh, dinner meetings, too, too much stress, too much, uh, ceremonial eating. And, too much at the end of the day, food addiction from my youth. So <clears throat> 
as I said uh, about my experience on Ozempic, in three weeks, I've lost 10 pounds. Um, I had 10 pounds to lose. This discussion about gaining weight, even though you have a smaller waist size, is a big deal. It's a far bigger deal than people think about, especially for baby boomers. Because one of the things that you begin to realize as you look at the science is that uh, loss of muscle mass is a big, big deal for cardiovascular inflammation, cardiovascular risk. So I have a lot of patients who get really focused on that and say, I don't want to lose too much weight. I don't want to lose muscle mass. I'm not going to go any further on that discussion yet, other than to say sometimes we need to be less fearful of losing muscle mass if we're just con if we're continuing to improve the strength and metabolic activity of those muscles. I'm going to have a uh, a friend and patient join us uh, in a few weeks. And he's uh, done a lot of weightlifting. He and I had this discussion a lot. And we're going to talk about a fellow, which you can find on the Internet. His name is Richard the Ant Hawthorne. He's, he's known as the Ant because he's got multiple world records for lifting multiples of his own weight, just like an ant. And an example is a um, 130-pound guy. Uh, doing multiple deadlifts, 610 up to 650 pounds. So again, you don't have to have these giant muscles to have very effective, strong, and metabolically active, healthy muscles. So we'll get to that discussion a little bit later. But again, Aura Ruth, thank you for Oh, I, I didn't even read your comment. Hello from my side of the world. Very weak, but better. Looking forward to exercising again. Gosh, uh, oh, I, did you tell us you had, was, was it a COVID problem you had? I'm glad to hear you're feeling better, and I'm glad you're getting out there to exercise for the reasons that I just discussed. Bobby Ocampo. Uh, Rick's uh, RX Wiki TV says that Viagra has been tested to improve insulin sensitivity and re reduce microalbumin, probably microalbumin creatinine ratio. So, but did not mention dose of sildenafil. I haven't seen that yet. I'm not completely surprised, but it's an interesting point, Bobby. Thank you so much for sharing. Mabuhe, God bless you for saving lives. And thank you. Bobby, and God bless you. Mabu, hey to you as well. Hey, Suze. Doc, what can we do about MTHFR mutations? So <clears throat> MTHFR is something that a lot of people are not aware of. It stands for a very long technical term, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Uh, don't try to remember that word. Just remember MTHFR. Here's, here's what, the reductase is an important thing to remember about it, though, because here's what that has to do with oxidation. Has anybody ever heard of the term antioxidants, like, as in like vitamins A, C, and E? It's a multi, what, trillion dollar industry now? And that's because we know that oxidation is driving cardiovascular inflammation. So we try to take these supplements 
that can help us with oxidation, antioxidants. That's why they're called that. But here's the thing. The body can always do something better. And if the body's got a mechanism for doing something, use that mechanism. That's what MTHFR is all about. It is the body's way of accomplishing antioxidation. Genetically, over half of us have some challenges in the MTHFR gene. And so what do you do about it? I'm going to cut to the punchline and get so we can get to another topic. But the very simple uh, thing is, yes, you can get genetically tested. As you know, I used to work for a human genetics lab. And yes, I do have uh, negative or uh, or bad MTHFR genes. I'm a poor methylator. You can look that up on the internet. You'll see a lot of stuff on it. Poor methylation or MTHFR. Here's what to do. You don't even have to get the, uh, the test if you don't want to. Uh, if you have uh, uh, some elevations like homocysteine, just go ahead and get methylated B vitamin complex. And we've covered the, the science behind that before. Uh, if there are other questions about it, uh, we, can, we can cover those again. Thank you, uh, Jesus. Shayar, best diet? BBE lifestyle. Hmm. BBBE. Hmm. I don't know what BBBE is, Shaw. Fort Worth West Side. How does taking larger doses of statin increase your risk of getting diabetes? Statin does uh, push you along that diabetes highway. So uh, now there's one statin, Fort Worth, that doesn't do that. That's called patavastatin. The generic name is Pavasta. And there is a, um, another generic that's available. That Pavasta usually comes from a generic uh, program in India. There's another group. Uh, you might not be able to read it. Um, Marley Drug here in the U.S. that has what's called a biological uh, generic. It's called Zipitamag. Um Lavalo is the brand name. It's expensive. It's still under patent, and they know that it's expensive because it's the kinder, gentler statin, and it doesn't cause this problem of increasing insulin resistance. Now, what do I take? I've taken that some, uh, but I'm back on simple, easy, low-dose Crestor or uh, Resuvastatin. Because the five milligrams or less per day does not have a significant impact on insulin resistance. Great question. Thank you so much, Fort Worth Westside. I hope that provided the clarity you were looking for. Big Fat Tuna. Hello. How are you, Big Fat Tuna? Bart Robinson. Get well. Or Ruth. I agree. Thank you, Bart. Or Ruth. I started following you because you brought in the science and knew how to take apart a paper. A rare quality in a doc. Thank you, Aura Ruth. You're, you're right. So uh, for, I will just make a comment about that. As you see, yes, I'm into prevention. My cardiovascular prevention is my, my passion, my space, because that's what's killing and disabling us. I used to work at Johns Hopkins. I was faculty there. And uh, besides teaching, my role was uh, to work as what's called an epidemiologist. I worked as an epidemiologist for 
uh, the state government. I did some work for the federal government as well. What is an epidemiologist? It's not a skin doctor. That's a dermatologist. Epidemiologist, uh, the term epidemiologist is built on the root word epidemics. Basically, what we're doing is something different. Uh, instead of looking at all the diseases in one person at a time, an epidemiologist looks at all the people that have one disease and look at that population impact of that disease, an epidemic. Now, what does that got to do with reading papers? Well, in order to understand the risk factors and the uh, transmission of diseases, you have to understand a lot of math. You have to get way deep into statistics. And I did take some um, doctoral level uh, probability classes, for example. Um, I enjoyed those, but they were very hard. So epidemiologists actually look at, okay, uh, was this a bias? Was this a participation bias? Was this something that the uh, research team didn't really think about? And there is no perfect study. Every study has problems. And the, the point that I wanted to bring to the internet was I said, you know, I don't know for sure. But I suspect a lot of people may really enjoy hearing the science behind cardiovascular prevention. So that's what this channel is all about. Thank you so much, Ora Ruth, for mentioning that. DCAP, how do you prevent weight loss being on metformin? I'm already so thin. A1C is at 6.2 now. Kept losing weight. Frustrating. That is a challenging problem. Uh, <clears throat> you're not the only person. There's a lot of folks who... Um, again, we've mentioned this so many times, so many of the good uh, diabetes medicines also cause weight loss. For the majority of us, that's a good thing because uh, so many of us have food addiction problems. We eat too much. And a lot of that's based on the biology, but not, not all of us, D. You represent that that small minority where you're already thin, but you still have diabetes or prediabetes. That's a major challenge. You know, like everything else in terms of cardiovascular prevention, a lot of this boils down to discipline. And what kind of discipline I'm talk am I talking about? I hate to say it, but, you know, it's the truth. It's what I deal with. My patients that have that problem have to figure out, okay, how can I get more calories in? Most of the time it's looking for sources of fats and oils, healthy fats, healthy oils that they maybe don't like so much, but they know they got to do it. Like I've got one of the more popular uh, countermeasures to the problem you described, D, is just taking several tablespoons of olive oil or avocado oil straight, you know, just take them, say, I know I got to do that. And this is an addition to the extra, to the food that I'm going to be eating. That's sort of like, you know, that get, you get the picture of the old timey little rascals or some of the cartoons where they were making kids take um, castor oil. Yeah. You know, it's, but it's the taste you hate once a day. Great question. Thank you so much for uh, for bringing that up, Dee. 
M ball, who makes money from stress tests? <laughs> Good question. You know, I, actually, in that book um, about how a stress test can't predict your heart attack, I go into some gory detail that's already, again, I don't make it up. I'm just reporting what's already been out there in the New York Times and uh, some other places about the major impact of uh, finance. It's called the medical industrial complex. Back in the days of Eisenhower, post-World War II, they coined a term, the economists coined a term, the military industrial complex. More recently, the use of the term medical industrial complex has been a big, big deal. And there's no question that finances continue to drive a lot of tests and procedures that just don't work. Uh, speaking of tests and procedures that don't work, I'm going to have a, a guest soon. He was on Ken Berry's uh, uh, podcast recently. He's coming to mind, but it's going to be a different kind of interview. His name is uh, Philip Adavia. O-D-A-V-I-A. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He wrote a book called Stay Off My, o uh, My Operating Table. Uh, Ivy League trained cardiothoracic surgeon uh, and now on the side, he's doing what I do, teaching people cardio lifestyle and cardiovascular prevention. Now, what was interesting and some of what's going to be different about uh, my interview with, with Phil, with Dr. Avadia, we're going to talk a lot about his personal life. He, he was obese at one point, a cardiothoracic surgeon uh, trying to replace uh, heart vessels that were clogged up with diabetes who had his own problem with obesity. He went keto, dropped his carbs, lost tons of weight. So you know what? Like me, I think he had a little bit of a food addiction issue there. And he and I are going to discuss that when, uh, when we, he uh, joins us. He's also been very clear. His perspective is, and he said it, the medical community really needs to apologize to our patient population for so many of the things that, that we've done to them that didn't help. And he's referring to stents. So I thought, oh, that is so interesting. A cardiovascular surgeon saying stents don't help. You know, he's talking about the courage trial. He's talking about the Orbita trial. They showed, I, I've reported on those many, many times. Those things don't help. And he wasn't even talking about stress tests like M. Ball just brought up. So as I'm listening to that podcast, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, okay, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, the Orbita trial and the, um, and the Courage trial showed that stents didn't, didn't help. So most doctors said, okay, well, it's got to be a bypass. That's the only thing that's going to help. And guess what? There was another study 
I've reported on it many times. It's called the ischemia trial. The ischemia trial showed that, except for some very um, circumscribed situations, bypass doesn't help either. Guess So I was waiting for him to, to see if he actually said that. And he did. To his credit, he said, my bread and butter, you know, what I do, that doesn't help most people either. So I can't wait to have uh, Dr. Avadia on the, on the show. Uh, stay tuned. I think it's going to be like August 4. I think that was the day he, he requested. Thanks, Mball. Great question. Uh, let's go to the next one. Bobby Ocampo, can SGLT2 inhibitors also help fatty liver? Anything that helps diabetes can help fatty liver. Um, it was, there was an interesting statistic that happened over, uh, a couple of years ago for the first time ever. Uh, more cirrhosis was being caused by fatty liver, which is a diabetes, pre-diabetes issue, than was being caused by alcohol. So big fat tuna, there's another new drug called terzepatide. Are you familiar with this? Big fat tuna, are you kidding or what? I mean, that's what the content was on about today. I hope you're kidding. That's what our content was on. And yes, I've got patience on it. And yes, it's, uh, it appears to be having a much bigger impact than even the glip ones. M-ball, eat more sugar, take a drug. That's the way to go. Unfortunately, more people are going to do that than the right thing. Thank you, M-ball. And I'll just say this again. I know that nobody else, none of, none of our viewers has this problem. But in my world, there's a lot of things that I really don't like. That's one of them. More people will eat more sugar and take a drug, then we'll actually do the right thing. Pardon me if that's repetitive. Big fat tuna, Mongero, terzepatide. It's an injection medicine. Uh, tuna, are, are, are you bombing us or did you not listen or what's going on? John Tacho, were you able to pay less for your Medicare uh, with Medicare? Oh, yes. So as I mentioned, John, you may not have heard it, uh, we set up, I went straight Medicare for now. I'm going to go Medicare Advantage later. But we set up uh, my uh, Medicare or Medigap coverage specifically so I could try these medications. And yes, I've checked on my copay. It's $45. Uh, very much more affordable, uh, less than a tenth of the price. Bob Bell, Jardian's concerned about Fournier's gangrene. So um, the most common issue associated with Jardian's and the SGLT2 inhibitors is what I mentioned before, um, infections due to uh, increased sugar in the urine. Thank you, Bob. Big fat tuna, I'm currently on Ozempic. My insurance wouldn't cover Wygovi, but will cover Mount Jero. I plan on taking, talking to me, Doc, about switching. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Big Fat Tuna. Bobby Ocampo, have a vacation in the Philippines and buy your two-year supply of dapagliflozin for only approximately $1,200 U.S. compared to your Farzaga. 
we welcome you here in the Philippines. You know what? Yet another reason for medical tourism. Um, and don't get me started on the frustrations, my frustrations with the FDA and Big Pharma and you name it. Thank you so much, Bobby. Or Ruth can see the weight loss best on your face. You look like you did four years ago. Aura, you're a good observer. Thank you so much. Uh, Luchan P, we need to get on that stuff. Sleep is a huge problem for me. Oh, gosh. It's a huge problem for me. What I have, Luchan, is a thing called early morning awakening. There's some, there has, for the longest time, look it up, uh, Wikipedia, EMA, early morning, or, or Google it, early morning awakening. You go to sleep, okay, um, but you wake up at two or three in the morning and you can't go back to sleep. Hopefully, if you're lucky, you'll get another hour of sleep before you wake up at seven or eight. If you don't, it's a rough day. And again, I had some sleep challenges last night, which more associated with uh, even I'm not I'm not going to go there. Uh, we all will. So more associated with challenges associated with the uh, the Alabama project. Even though I got very little sleep, it was such effective sleep. It was like I'm living in a different world in terms of sleep than I've lived in since I was a teenager. I don't, I don't hear that all the time from patients. I don't know how reliable that's going to be for folks. I'm just sharing. I'm taking off my doctor hat and sharing my patient experience hat. Lucian P., what's that mean? Uh, not sure what that means. Ada Reeves, what part of Medicare covers uh, Ozempic? I thought you need to have a supplemental insurance to cover Rx. That's, that's exactly what I was just discover, uh, discussing, Ada. Uh, it was my Medigap coverage plan. Big fat tuna. Monjero will typically cost around $9.75 for four weeks of treatment. Yes, it will. It's a very these are very expensive drugs. And that's one of the reasons that I uh, I've personally not covered them so much. What happened was the CVOT trials, the cardiovascular outcome trials, continued to pile up showing the effectiveness of these drugs for cardiovascular prevention. I mean, that's what this channel is about. That's what I do. So that increased again, my curiosity and my focus in the space. Um, as I, maybe it was it you big fat tuna that mentioned insurance companies are starting to cover it. Yes, it's expensive, but they're starting to cover it. And it's because, as an insurance company, you can't not cover something that has such positive impacts on cardiovascular outcome trials. Guys, I am, hold on just a second. I have a meeting. I've got another, I've got another half hour and then we've got at least that many questions. So let's, let's see if we can pick up the pace. Do you have any concerns with thyroid cancers or rare side effective GLP-1? Absolutely, Bob. The number one contraindication for GLP-1s is thyroid cancer. As I said earlier, every one of these, every prescription drug, you can pretty much rely, will usually have some, at least one very serious uh, outcome. With uh, other diabetes drugs, for example, um, uh, oh, I'm having them. 
Oh gosh, I'll I'll cover it later. It was it's Actos. Somebody uh, give me the give me the technical name for it. I'm blanking on it right now. Actos was a great diabetes drug. Came out of the blocks. It was being used a lot. It's the only drug that actually works on the insulin receptor itself. But it uh, it caused it was found to cause bladder cancer. So you look at every one of these drugs. Glip ones associated with thyroid cancer, uh, also associated with another type of adenoma, um, MEN, multiple endocrine adenoma. And it's probably because it stimulates endocrine glands. So, mm, doc, you're talking about poisons. They hurt us. They kill us. Yep. Diabetes. The, uh, um, you shouldn't be taking these. I, I, you shouldn't be taking these unless you already have a life-threatening issue, um, a thing that's actually more life-threatening than these. And again, uh, the great—I think it was the great Pogo once said, "Look, you pay your money, you take your licks." Now, one of the—I I, can't—I cannot have that conversation without mentioning another argument I have with the FDA. I think F the FDA ought to take metformin off of the prescription list. It is not. It does not have the kind of serious side effects that you see with GLP-1s, SGLT2s, um, uh, pioglitazone, which is the actose I was trying to remember. You just don't see those kind of um, things with metformin. It ought to be like aspirin. In fact, aspirin has more dangerous side effects than pioglitazone. I mean, not pioglitazone, um, metformin. Aspirin has more serious side effects than um, metformin. So again, go back. Don't take any of these drugs if you don't need them. Uh, Bobby Ocampo, if terzepatide increases insulin, does it worsen insulin resistance? No, it does not. That is an interesting question. You would think, well, if you're constantly getting more insulin put out there, then you must be increasing the resistance. I don't think we understand fully yet how that works, but we do know from enough experience, like I said, these, uh, uh, the glip ones, not terzepatide yet, it's still new, but the glip ones don't increase insulin resistance. So still more to learn about these medications. Dr. Ben Bickman is recommending low insulin to improve insulin sensitivity. I'm aware of that. And it certainly makes sense. Drax of the North, would terzepatide help reduce raised A1C levels caused by statins or niacins? Of course it would. Good question. Thank you for asking. Big Fat Tuna at Bob Bell. I heard that too. Again, I think talking about the... Um, the thyroid cancer association with the GLP-1s. DCAP, I have an idiopathic gastroparesis that probably developed from SIBO. And my sugar stays up because food is fermenting in the gut. No hunger or overeating. The days my bowels move good, my sugar is okay. Interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. Shaw Yard, is it safe for people with uh, third degree kidney disease? Uh, Yes, that's a uh, that's a different 
a different issue. It can get a little bit more complicated. I'm not going to cover that uh, today, but it's a good question. Um, you need to talk to a doc before you before you take one of these medications for the reasons that we discussed. Tanner Bruin, do you need to be diagnosed type two before you can be prescri prescribed these drugs? Usually before your uh, insurance will pay for it. They will pay for these, um, the glip ones like Ozempic for, most insurance companies will pay for Ozempic and the other glip, glip ones for obesity as well. But if you don't have obesity, if you just have some prediabetes, most of them aren't going to uh, agree to pay for it. Drax of the North, does the weight come back when you discontinue terzepatide? That's not that clear yet. I suspect that it does. Uh, perhaps a little bit more slowly because perhaps with those 40 weeks, you've changed your, your uh, food habits. There's no question about that. But does it totally uh, reconfigure the uh, food, the satiety hormones, the ghrelin, the uh, incretins? No, it doesn't. Fred J. Marco, Doc, what do I have to do to consult with your group about my diabetes? My doctor wants to put me on insulin. Ah, nah, I would, oh, I would not. I would consider a lot of stuff before I went on insulin. But I want more info. So, uh, Gilbert, can you put up uh, Michelle's telephone number again? 859-721-1414. Um, you can call Michelle at that number, Fred. Or you can uh, visit us on our website. I mean, just look up my name, look up the website. There's places there where you can figure out how to get in to see us. I've, I'm licensed. I have current medical licenses in all 50 states of the United States. Um, I can see you as a doc and prescribe medications, assuming you live here. Uh, for other countries, it's a slightly different issue, but uh, not that different. I have patients in Israel. Uh, Brazil, Singapore, Thailand, uh, Philippines, you name it. I was, oh, tons of them in Australia and New Zealand. So we got patients everywhere. DCAP, couldn't complete my earlier comment. Motility meds make me sick too. So kids stuck. Hmm. Harvey Ops, terzepatide weight loss. Any info regarding fat versus muscle loss? Uh, no, I did not see uh, info in that area. I will tell you this, given the mechanisms, they're more weight, uh, the, weight bleh, the mechanisms are more directed towards loss of body fat. But like any kind of uh, weight loss, you have to continue to stimulate muscle uh, to stress those muscles, work them out, push them in order to maintain muscle mass and muscle strength and muscle function, especially when you're in a weight loss mode, no matter what is the cause of the weight loss. Decap, uh, kind of, motility meds make me sick, kind of stuck. Drax of the North, how does terzepatide compare to a clean ketogenic lifestyle? So, you know, that's a really good question, and I'm, we've touched on it a couple of times. Is this an either-or? If it's an either-or, ketogenic lifestyle. Do that in a heartbeat. 
Uh, I mean, it's like, why would you take a medication for something that you can fix completely with a lifestyle change? I mean, is it that important to eat carbs? Of course it's not. So again, uh, I, I don't see these as a, if this is an either or, I think the, uh, the answer to the question should be very, very obvious. Ketogenic lifestyle is much safer. It's much less expensive. Stick with it. If it, if it will keep you off of terzepatide, do it. I mean, these are drugs. These are not, and these, and they're prescription drugs. Like, like, uh, gosh, somebody mentioned a few minutes ago, Bob Bell mentioned a few minutes ago, these things are associated with cancer. You know, they still cause fewer deaths than uh, folks that are, than diabetes that folks are struggling with. But if you can manage your diabetes with lifestyle alone, don't go to drugs. Don't do it. Okay, so Lucian P, fatter muscle loss is a big deal because metformin causes muscle loss. Lucian, I would like to see some references on that. I know that's a very common perspective. I know, and I've seen a lot of the, the science around it. And I will say this, to your point, there is some scientific support for it. There's no question. But unless you're like a, you know, a regional level athlete or Olympic level. And I've had a few of those. Metformin, uh, you really need to have a discussion about, okay, is the perceived decrease in muscle loss from metformin, is that not something I can overcome? Uh, you know, again, it's like everything else when we start looking at these things, lifestyle versus medication. Um, and again, I would not recommend metformin for someone who uh, can manage this without it. Bobby Ocampo, one internet video said that walking after a meal has a better effect than metformin. Have you done it, Bobby? I, I think anybody that hasn't done it should try it. There's no question. Taking a walk after every meal, and especially, you know, number one, uh, getting the car excess carbs out of your meals has a, more of an impact than metformin. And let me go back and let me just quote a study. This was like 10 years ago in the New England Journal. It was a very simple head-to-head -head comparison. Um, lifestyle versus medication. And lifestyle was very simple, very easy. It was like there was some weight loss, but it was on the order of five pounds. It wasn't huge. Those lifestyle and, and, you know, some walking kind of exercise, not anything significant or aggressive. Um, those lifestyle changes were three times, not twice, three times more effective than metformin and no lifestyle changes. So, again, we're as you can see, we're all hovering around this theme of medications versus lifestyle. And I, you know, I think we're all preaching to the choir here. The folks that watch this channel know lifestyle hands down is the issue. We also all know that unfortunately that's not the case for most people.
And when you do what I do for a living, that's frustrating. So, uh, Steve Sapel, uh, Sapel Steve. Hi, Doc. Off topic. Any news on the Omicron B4, B5 variants of COVID? Should people have had all of the, that have had all the vaccines be concerned? I am not that deep uh, into it. I will make a couple of comments about what I have seen. Number one, uh, there's been evidence that there's been as much or more new infections with COVID recently than we've ever had. But there's been very few people, comparatively few people, ending up in the hospital. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that most of us are just not getting as sick from COVID as we did the first time around. Is that from vaccination? Is that from previous exposure, previous infection? I think the answer to those questions is yes, it's from all of the above. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing. Now, here, here are the next question. Are new upcoming variants going to, uh, are we gonna react the same to those? I, you know, that remains to be seen. Uh, I think we have to cross that bridge when we come to it. Robert Weiss from the North Georgia Mountains. Good morning, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate seeing you here, and thanks for commenting. Uh, Bobby Ocampa, Dr. Eric Berg is re recommending hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I have... Uh, worked with a lot of people that recommend hyperbaric oxygen therapy for a lot of things. It clearly works appropriately for some things like the bends, the diver's disease. Uh, it clearly works for some things like burns. Um, but hyperbaric oxygen is sort of like uh, chelation. People get some ideas that they can use it for anything and everything, including atherosclerosis, plaque. And, uh, you know, they have their theories, but check in on the science before you start going down those pathways. Okay, Harvey Ops, uh, Body by Science, Dr. Doug McGuff, ER doc in South Carolina, myokines, high-intensity strength training, short time per week, slow movement, Load under tension is key. You're talking about muscle performance and have no arguments with that. I will say this. If you, if you read and study some of the world-class performers in bodybuilding and in uh, weight training, uh, in performance lifting, uh, you'll hear a lot of the same things. You'll hear a lot of debate. You know, some of them say, don't uh, tie yourself out with high reps just focus on low reps, major resistance. And that sounds like where you might be going. I will tell you, to me, the preponderance of the studies in that space would say, you really do need both. You do need some low rep, incredibly high intensity stuff, which is what this sounds like this is, that group. But you also need the other end of the spectrum. You need to wear that muscle out and... That means, you know, burning that glycogen out of that muscle so it realizes, yeah, we got to put more glycogen back to replace what we burned out. And that often has to do with high rep, low intensity. So, or time under tension, tut. So, uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with those debates. Like so many debates in science, 
and in this world, politics and everything else, I tend to see so many places where both sides were right. It's like the, you know, it's like that old uh, Asian uh, story that's an analogy of this issue. It was the seven blind men and the elephant. You know, one blind man was feeling the, the leg and he said, no, an elephant's like a tree trunk. Another one felt the elephant's tail and they said, no, no, the elephant's like, it's like a, a rope. Another one felt the elephant's, you know, side and he said, no, the elephant's like a big wall. The other one, another one felt the tusk and said, no, no, this thing is like a giant spear. Another blind man felt the elephant, you know where this is going. Another elephant felt the blind, I mean, blind man <laughs> felt the elephant's trunk. And you know what he said? No, 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 this is like a snake. This thing is wiggling all around. Which one of them was right? That's where this is going. Michael Sanders. Hi, Doc from Arizona. How much omega-3 should an old guy be taking? You know, omega-3 is one of those continuing debates. Now, uh, the, um, the folks that make, oh, I'm blanking on the, the term, the, the more recent one, um, don't throw out your fish oil uh, iodine. Sorry, I'm having a senior moment on the, the name of that stuff. Uh, Amarin. Is it Amarin? The Amarin folks that make uh, that uh, uh, omega-3 oil. So the omega-3 oils are, um, there are a couple of different kinds of omega-3 oil. Their perspective is, uh, one of those kinds is not as effective as another. And now my sleep loss is starting to show on me. Um, I can't remember the, I'm blanking on the, uh, the, uh, the different types. I'll have to come back to that later. Bottom line is get a gram of, um, at least a gram, if you can, of omega-3 oils and get the, uh, the more common one. Somebody give me help, help me out here in terms of my senior moment uh, on the types. I'm going to have to to finish up soon anyway to get to another meeting. But hopefully, I don't have so many word finding problems uh, on that next one. Sorry, Michael. Hopefully, we can cover that again a little bit later. Uh, Robert Weiss, avoid quad bypass. It's still getting uh, after quad bypass. It still gets rid of plaque, right? Well. You know, again, I go back to the ischemia trial. If you're saying, look, a quad bypass actually works, go look at the, the studies of the ischemia trial or listen to Phil Avadia, who does those when he joins us on August 4th. After carbs, how long are carbs still carbs? To burn as carbs before they are turned to fat. Oh, well, see, that's an interesting point. So this may not be exactly what you're asking, but Timing on carbs is a very, very interesting issue. Um, people say, oh, no, you, you're talking about simple carbs, simple sugars. They're the problem, not complex carbohydrates. So eat, com uh, eat complex carbohydrates. Eat uh, whole wheat bread. Look at, the, look at the glycemic value of a whole wheat bread. It's almost as high as sugar. So, and I think both of them are, are, are and white White bread is like higher than sugar. So the point behind that is, quote, complex carbs take seconds to turn into sugar in your bloodstream. And sugar 
I don't know how long it takes. Somebody Google search and, and help me out on that. How long does it take blood sugar to turn into fat? Lucian P, we're gonna we're gonna have to move here uh, quickly. Uh, Lucian P, walnut oil is better than olive oil. Hmm, I'm not a big walnut oil. I haven't studied it a whole lot and can't answer that. Mezzanine, would you consider a high G consider a GLP drug for a low carb athletic poor sleeper with recent fasting glucose of 107, but fasting insulin of 2.4? Trying to get my doc to prescribe a CGM, but he's resisting. Oh yeah, I would try both of them. I, I would consider uh, both of those, a CGM, like a Libre, <clears throat> and a um, and a Glip one. I mean, that's very similar to what I've got, you know, a low carb, athletic, poor sleeper. Um, <clears throat> and I told you about my, you know, my experience. It's very interesting. Eric Berg is a goof. You said it. Uh, I, no comment. Uh, uh, quite often, I agree. Paisley, I'm in healthcare. I'm at the hospital now, sitting with a confused patient. Hmm. Good luck with you and the confused patient. BTC, also, Doc, I recently added Zetia to my five milligrams Crestor. I listened to a podcast from the diet doctor. He stated this experience in his low carb clients. Uh, my ApoB went from 100 to 40. Amazing. That is interesting. I heard about that. I haven't heard that specific diet doctor uh, comment, but somebody else was telling me about, um, about that comment. I have not been a major fan of adding Zetia uh, to Crestor, but I'm reconsidering based on that new, that new information. Robert Weiss, friend just had quad bypass. Now the plan is getting rid of plaque and strengthening the cardio system, I think, or yeah, that's what yeah, that's the usual plan. Do the surgery first and then start thinking about how to fix it. Uh, Luchan P, I can't go keto without electrolyte imbalance problems. It's not so easy to drop the carbs. <clears throat> um, if you heard me say, and if you heard me apply, and I've said and implied this a few times, uh, just drop the carbs. I realized that's a headache. That's I get a lot of patients that come see me, and that's one of the things that uh, it's a challenge. You know, many of them will say, well, you know, I just decrease them. The reality is at least once in your life, you need to do a fastidious, obsessive, compulsive look at the number of carbs you're eating and start just knocking them off one at a time. Uh, make that change, hit the low lying fruit, pardon the pun, stabilize, and then look at it again. I don't think I'm going to be able, well, no, I'm not going to be able to get to all the rest of the comments. A lot of, lot of interesting, a lot of interest today, a lot of comments. Uh, Shah Yar, BBB, oh, BBBE, beef, bacon, butter, and eggs. That is Dr. Berry advice to improve health. Yeah, um, no arguments there. Um, a lot of people would be disappointed with me for not arguing with that. I'm more concerned about carbs. Lucian P, mezzanine NutriSense offers a CGM without a prescription. Yes, I've heard that. And I keep planning to do a video on that. But we just got so many interesting topics to cover. Lucian, I would think given how safe CGMs are, everyone should be able to get it over the counter. Lucian, I could not agree with you more. That's another one of my arguments with the FDA. So far, only NutriSense gives CGM to masses. I don't know how they got around the FDA requirement. 
Joseph Bates, why is there so much emphasis on taking a statin to re reduce overall cholesterol versus addressing the root cause of reducing the damage, especially in light of all the functions of cholesterol, potential harms of this reduction? What are the best ways to measure that reduction of damage? Do we just look at the triglyceride over HDL ratio and insulin levels, or is there anything else we should be looking for? Joseph, thank you for asking that question. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, and you give me an opportunity to say it again. If you haven't had an OGTT, and even better, an insulin survey, look it up, Craft Insulin Survey. It's an OGTT with, uh, with insulin measurements. If you haven't had that, you need to have it. Uh, guys, I am, uh, I've got another meeting in one minute. I appreciate the interest. And uh, again, we still have tons of, of questions and, and uh, not going to be able to get to all of them today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.